0: What is wrong with the world and how is God trying to save it? That's what we've been talking about all summer long. And we learned last week that uh, God's answer to a universal problem is a particular person. Starts out with Noah. He found someone who walks before him and lives a blameless life. And God uses that as kind of a fulcrum in the world. After Noah was a fellow named Abraham. And God spoke to Abraham a promise and said, I will make you great. I will bless you. I'll curse those who curse you, bless those who bless you, and through you I will bless all nations of the world. understand, this is not a contract. This is a statement that God is making. He's not asking for permission. He's just moving forward. And he says to Abraham, now here's what I need you to do. This word, blessing or covenant in the Old Testament is a pretty complicated word. It's the word chesed. It means mercy. We sang just a few moments ago, Lord, have mercy. It just doesn't mean compassion. It means, Lord, have mercy have loving kindness, show favor, show goodness, show mercy to these people and to us. This is what is happening in Abraham's life. And then through him, God will bless the rest of the world. Now today is the story of Joseph. One of the problems in the world is the problem of injustice. It seems every time we look at the news, there's another expression of injustice somewhere. While I speak, they're gathering at the border and they're trying to move laws in Washington in order to create justice for a certain demographic in the U.S. When we look across our city, we see the same things are happening. We see certain people not just feeling but actually being marginalized, by power structures and there is a commensurate call for justice just this week i read a story uh, in the free press of a ceo of a large corporation was just released for um, child pornography and and uh, sexting different people in the organization And um, the courts decided that he should leave with a $16 million parachute. Some people go to jail for that. Here's a $16 million parachute for a 60-some-year-old guy. The article said that the average person working in his corporation making just less than $60,000 a year would have to work 400 years to earn what this dude makes in a single year. That's a form of injustice. It's not the kind you always hear about, but it's a form of injustice, is it not? The problem is that we often uh, respond with an equal and opposite cry for justice the approach is typically to rally the sources and to rally people around a cause to make sure that systems and perpetrators in them who create injustice feel the pain so they will stop. The problem is that this just creates other victims. We change laws to protect one person and create victims of other people. And so the problem just seems like it's moving from generation to generation. The victims change in every generation. But there are always victims to our call for justice. When I was a kid... uh, I had a favorite blanket, like an afghan. I used to curl up under the blanket, could wrap it under my feet and pull it over my shoulders. You ever have one of these? And you just sort of curl up in a ball and sleep all night. And As I got older, my body grew. And the little afghan started getting too short. <laughs> so I'd turn sideways in the night and curl up like in a fetal position. And I covered my whole body. But in the night while you sleep, the body grows. <laughs> and the legs start to come out straight. And I'll wake up at 1.30 and my feet are now sticking out. And I wonder why they're cold. So I'll shove the afghan down and cover my feet and fall back asleep. And 2.30 I wake up and guess what? Now it's my shoulders, and then it's my arms. It's the theory of the too short blanket. The body is too big for the blanket. It's not that the blanket is wrong. It's just that it's too small of an answer to the problem. Now, the problem is injustice. And it's not that the call for justice is wrong. (laughs) It's just that in every generation, we're moving it around to another demographic to cover another exposed part of the body, only to find that our children in 20 years from now will have to come back and pull it over again to try to compensate for the unintended consequences of this generation. Are you still with me? Be merciful, please. I want to pose, if I can this morning, an alternative to justice. It's not that justice is wrong. It's that it's too small of an answer. You understand the only time we change laws is when the injustice has reached a peak. But most injustice hides in subtle, insidious ways. You can make it illegal for somebody to do something, but you still haven't made it fair until you've transformed the person. And you can't transform people with law. You need another force. I want to recommend that a social alternative to justice is luck. This is a college church. You wanted a sophisticated answer. Sorry. I think it's luck. Now, Joseph... was favored by the Lord. Genesis 39 says, the Lord showed kindness to Joseph and he favored him. William Tyndale's old translation says, the Lord showed kindness to Joseph and he was one lucky fella. <laughs> it means that whatever is happening around you, God is doing something to you and in you that compensates for all that's happening around you. And I suggest if you don't have that favor, there aren't enough laws in the land to protect you. But if you have it, then you cannot be stopped. So I want to speak to people today who feel themselves suffering from some form of injustice it does no good to rack them up and say that one kind is worse than another to the person who feels the sting and the anger of it it is to them the worst possible kind so I want to spend just a few moments talking to you and I want to call you to the table this morning because I think the table communion is the ultimate reconciliation But it will not be the last word today. I'll come back at the end of that with five minutes. Some of you like to take communion and head for the exits. You might still do that. We'll just miss the last five minutes. Joseph's story is, I think, a wonderful anecdote to this when the story begins, there must be a couple things you must look for. Uh, Number one, there's no place in the story where there's a miracle. There's no place in the story where God is said to speak directly to anyone. In other words, if you're looking for the activity of God in Joseph's story, you will not see it up front. You have to look behind the scenes. You have to read situations and into them to discern that God is active even though he is not verbally speaking to someone. Is that clear? You cannot Look for a word from the Lord. You have to learn to discern the movement of events. It's a different way to read the movie. The second thing is that this is not just Joseph's story. Verse 2 of chapter 37 says, This is the account of Jacob not Joseph. So this is Joseph's story, but it's not really a story about Joseph. It's a story about Jacob, and Jacob, we know, is Israel. So you can step back and say, wait a minute, this is a series of events that happened to Joseph, but what it's really about is the people of God. Now you can say, wait a minute, that means Israel, or or you can say, wait, that's the church. However you interpret this, when you read the details in Joseph's life, you're not reading about a single individual. You're reading about what it is to be a minority on the margins, how to be a faithful person in another land when someone else is in power. That is the story of Joseph, and it's everyone's story in this room all that's different is the categories the subject at the beginning of Joseph's story two things are clear one is he is favored and the other is that he is always in the middle of conflict so they go out back and forth. First he's favored, and then that causes conflict. And then in the middle of the conflict, there is more flave, uh, favor, which causes only more conflict. And so the way you read the story is to read it, which one is being, is being highlighted while the other one lies dormant. When the story starts, uh, Joseph is favored by his father, more loved than others. His father makes him a many-colored robe. And Joseph has a dream, says to his brothers, you know, I had a dream that we were all holding these big old sheaves of grain and right there in the middle of it, man, your sheaves just walked over and bowed down to mine. Now, word to the wise, if God ever gives you a word like this, you should not tell anybody, (laughs) especially not your siblings. He says, I had another dream. You're not going to believe this. There was the sun and the moon and 11, star- 11, star- 11 stars. Oh, my goodness, there's 11 of you. <laughs> and they were all bowing down. And his brothers said, thanks be to God. <laughs> you were bowing down. This is a word from the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's not quite how it happened. It says four times, verse 4, verse 5, verse 8, and verse 11. They hated him for it. And every time he talked about it, they hated him all the more. So one day when they're out in the fields and he goes out looking for them, they looked over and they said, wait a minute, here comes that dreamer now. Let's beat the life out of them and see what happens to the dream." Well, they start beating them up. They're fixing to kill them. And all of a sudden, Judah, one of the brothers, has a better idea. He says, wait a minute. Let's make some money on him. Let's not just kill him. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. That's odd. Ishmael. So they pitch him into a hole, and they see over the Desert, some nomads coming and they sell them for money, and they leave for home with a fistful of dollars, and Joseph is in the hands of the Ishmaelites headed off to slavery. When he gets into Egypt, it just so happens <laughs> that Potiphar is looking for some slaves. Now there's a thousand places to be a slave in Egypt in this day, but Potiphar just happens to need a couple more and when he looks out and sees Joseph he just sort of says think I'll take that one he's one lucky fella we can sit and decry if we want the condition of slavery it is a horrible horrible social evil but if you're going to be one Potiphar's a pretty good place to start So he starts serving in Potiphar's household and he's really good at what he does. He gets so good, Potiphar turns to him and says, You know, everything that I have, I'll pretty much let you run everything. For God favored him. This is not lost on Potiphar's wife. She notices one day that Joseph is attractive and now he's successful. And it's irresistible to her, so she comes to him and says quite bluntly, "Sleep with me." He refuses. She comes back. It says day after day, and he refuses day after day. One day he's standing in a room by himself, and his Potiphar's wife grabs his jacket and says, "Sleep with me." <laughs> And Joseph turns and runs out of the building, and she grabs his jacket and holds on to it. Now she's got evidence. The moment he's gone, she starts to scream. She calls for the servants. The servants come in. She says, this guy tried to rape me, and I was fighting him off, and I've got his jacket. Do you see it? And when clueless Potiphar comes home that night, though. She says, this is what happened to me. That Hebrew slave that you stuck in my presence tried to rape me and I fought him off. And Potiphar's enraged. And the part about this that enrages me is that there is never a moment in the story where Joseph is ever formally accused. He, he never gets to see Uh, the person accusing him. There's never a trial. There's never a moment where Potiphar comes to Joseph and says, what did you do? There's not a hearing. He just throws him into prison. He should have killed him. Protocols to kill him. Potiphar's a four-star general and you're messing with his wife? You're dead before supper in Egypt, but he throws him into prison. Why? Well, people have theories. They say this maybe wasn't the first time potiphar heard that accusation. Maybe this was kind of like her. Maybe prison was in Potiphar's jurisdiction, but execution was not, and so he simply exercised the limit of his power. I have another explanation that is uh, more sophisticated, harder to believe, and more outrageous, and therefore, more scholarly. <laughs> Here's my explanation. He was one lucky fella. Instead of being dead, he's in prison. Did I mention it's not Potiphar's prison? It's the king's. (laughs) The dude just got promoted in prison so he's sitting in prison one day and a couple guys come in they work for the king one was a wine bearer one was a baker they got both imprisoned on the same day and They had a dream one night, and Joseph could see the next morning their faces were all sort of out of shape. And he said to them, well, what exactly is the problem? You don't seem like yourself. They said, we've had dreams. We can't interpret this. Joseph said, all dreams belong to God. Tell me your dream. So the wine bearer goes first. He said, I saw a mighty vine, and then I saw these grapes just form into clusters. I grabbed the clusters, and I squeezed those grapes into a chalice, and I handed the chalice to the potter. Joseph said, that's easy. Three days from now, you're going to be sent back to Potiphar's household. You'll be working for the king right in the palace just like you were before. Baker's listening to this. He likes his chances now. And so he says to him, wait a minute, I had a dream. What is it? He said, I had three baskets on my head and the top one had all kinds of bread in it. I was going to give it to the Pharaoh. Some birds came, started eating that bread. Joseph said, and? And? He said, No, that's it. Joseph goes, Dude, that ain't good. This ain't in the Hebrew, by the way. He said, Man, three days from now, they're gonna come and cut off your head and put your body on a pole, and the birds are gonna eat your flesh. <laughs> Baker goes, oh, oh, I think that was his dream. You see, it was, sure enough, three days later, they come and they take the one guy out, execute him. They go get the wine bearer. They take him back to the palace as he's walking out of the prison. Joseph yells out to him, by the way, when you get back there, don't forget me. Listen to the words. When you get before the pharaoh, before the king, you tell them that I was kidnapped as a Hebrew slave and even though I have done nothing wrong, I am sitting here in this prison rotting. You make sure the king knows that. I'll tell him, said the wine bearer. But when the wine bearer got back before the king, got his position back, he totally forgot him. You ever known people like that in your life? They're all passionate and interested in your cause until they get what they want. And then they all of a sudden forget that you even exist. And for two long years, Joseph sits in a dungeon, forgotten. Conflict. And then one day, the king had a dream. I've asked the Lord, Lord, why could you not just make the wine bearer remember Joseph when he got out of prison? And I think, the, I, I, I know the answer, but it might be that the solution doesn't mean anything until you have a problem. And it takes the king having a dream before the solution will mean anything. So the king says to his servants, I got a problem. I have a dream and I can't interpret it. And that's when the wine bearer remembers. Wait a second. I know a guy. I was in prison. I don't know if he's alive anymore, but there was a guy. He predicted my ascension, the baker's death, He's two for two, king. Maybe he can help you. Go get him, says the king. So they go into the prison, they release Joseph, they get him all shined up and bring him in before the king. And the king says, Here's my dream. I saw seven big fat shiny cows standing by the river. They were chewing cud. And all of a sudden, seven skinny cows came up and ate up the fat cows. Joseph said, it's getting clearer. He said, there was another one. There were seven big old pieces of grain and then seven scraggly looking weeds came along and ate those stalwart stalks of grain. And Joseph said, it's clear to me now. There will be seven years of famine." After there are seven years of bounty. God will give you seven years of bounty. Followed by seven years of famine. The famine will be so bad you won't even remember the bounty. King says, it's awful. What should we do? Joseph says, well, if I were you. I'd appoint somebody over the agriculture, somebody who knows this stuff. And I would put little other people in positions around the different regions of the country, collect 20% of the grain, put it in a reservoir, and then when the famine hits, you can feed the country. King goes, that's brilliant. You know anybody could do that? Joseph says, I know a guy. (laughs) This is outrageous. The moment there is disaster, it's like there is another mitigating force. You can't pass laws fast enough to keep up with the injustice that is happening in that day. It takes the hand of God in quiet. Tiny places to mitigate all the plans of a man. So they're part way through the years of famine, and Joseph gets married and he has a couple of children. Here's where the story turns. Moviegoers miss it. He names the first child, Manasseh whose name means forget. And when the baby is born, Joseph says, God has caused me to forget my suffering, my homeland. He has another baby named Ephraim. And when he holds the baby and names him Ephraim, the name means fruitful and Joseph says God wait for it has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering people it is right here where the story starts to turn Joseph's life is one episode of injustice after the other I believe that Joseph all the while acting with integrity, felt in his heart this dissonance. I know what is right. I know where home is. I know how wrong this is. Oh, if I had the power, I would fix it. But I think when his children were born that day, there was something of a healing of memories taking place. It was as if God was just pulling the bile right out of his spirit. It was as if God was giving him two children anchored in Egypt. It was as if he was saying, Egypt is your home. You keep wanting to go back to this perfect place called normal. Egypt is normal, Joseph. You keep wanting justice. You want your cause. And God is making you fruitful in the land of your suffering. Joseph, quit fighting. Settle down. Now the movie can end. Now it can end. Because when Joseph's brothers finally appeared before him, He is not an angry man. He's not looking for a score to settle. He doesn't have an axe to grind anymore. He believes that God is in charge, that in spite of all of the evil people have put against him, God has favored him. He knows that even though all of this is wrong and busted and people should pay, God is alive, and he is active in his life Now when his brothers come in for food one day in Egypt, they bow before Joseph. Oh, my goodness. This is the moment where every person who has ever been oppressed feels themselves rising up and saying to their persecutors, I told you so. I told you. You know why he doesn't do it? Because he's settled down. He's done with the fight. He is favored. And he just lives in the terms of that favor. People, this message today is one of the hardest I've had to preach because I know what the climate is like. And I know that you are looking for an answer that is more either political or social, than the one that I gave you. My answer this morning, calling for divine favor, seems to you like a 50-cent answer to a $10 problem. I assure you, it is the other way around. Injustice is not a 50-cent problem. It is a massive problem. But there were a few things I was trying to say. I will spell them out right now. One, the most significant advantage in your life is the favor of God. It is not your education. It is not your ambition. It is not your competitive edge. It is not your status or your popularity or your lack thereof. It is the favor of God, period. All of these other things matter. But when God favors you, the fix is in. Now, you do not always know if you're favored by looking at your circumstances because of conflict. There is always conflict wherever there is favor favor needs conflict to build momentum so don't look at your circumstances go back to the covenant God has chosen you he is interested in you he loves you and he cares about what happens to you hang on that in spite of the conflict are you with me Two, you must never act in a way that is inconsistent with God's favor or you nullify it. You'll never change his mind about you. He loves you and he wants to bless you, but you can nullify that blessing by acting in ways that are inconsistent with it. So you must be careful when fighting injustice, you do not become so angry that you're an angry person because then God has two problems, injustice and you. Far better to live in the moment, focused on God, and let God control history, not you. Three, sometimes God will bless you in a land you don't want to be in. But remember, the word of the Lord is, I will not only bless you, I will bless others through you. And sometimes we are so focused on getting blessed, we can't let him bless others through us. Because our vision of being blessed is always happiness. It's never hard. So you may be this morning in a place that you don't want to be in and don't feel real blessed, but maybe God is blessing others through you in that place and for When God favors you, everything that was intended to stop you will make you better. You don't always know it, and you don't always feel it. But when they resist you, they will strengthen you. Against their wishes. And God will make you better. Better. would you stand for I am convinced says Paul that all things work together for the good of those of us who love him and have been called according to his purpose for those whom God foreknew he did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he might be firstborn among many. And those he predestined, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. What do we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not give us his own Son, will he not also with him give us all things. Who is the one who lays charges against the people God has anointed? There is danger, there is persecution, there is famine, there is sword. Are we overwhelmed by these things? No. No, Paul says. No, no, in all things we are more than conquerors. For I am sure that neither demons nor angels, neither death nor life, neither things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Let the church say, Amen.